0: Um, a question, though, as we as we carry on in our new sermon series that we started last week, question being, what does it look like to live as a citizen of God's kingdom? What does it like? To, what does it look like to live as a citizen of God's kingdom? Uh, I'm a citizen of two different countries, might be a little bit greedy, but that's the way it is, Uh, Australia and Great Britain. And there there are times when it might look a little bit different to be a citizen of one country or the other. Uh, A trivial example might be uh, bicycle helmets. So I, I would be taking my life in my hands, but I could cycle down Battersea Battersea Rise with with no bicycle helmet, and I wouldn't be breaking the the laws of this country. It's not against the law to do that, might be foolish, but not against the law, I can still kind of be a good citizen of of this country and do that. Whereas in Australia, it it is against the law to cycle without a bicycle helmet, so there I would need uh, to be wearing one in order to be keeping the, the rules of that country. But what does it look like to be a citizen of God's kingdom? We're going to be thinking about that, thinking about the kingdom and about its king uh, this evening as we carry on in our, se- in our series. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 28 to 34. Do turn to it in, in your Bibles. It's on page 1018 of the Church Bibles. If you don't have one, do uh, just stick a hand in the air and someone will deliver one to you uh, very quickly if you don't have one. And uh, let me pray while you're doing that. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us in your word. Thank you uh, that, that we can come to it expectant to hear from you. And we pray that this evening that would be the case. We pray your Holy Spirit would be working in us, helping us to understand it better and to love you more. Amen. Well, in my opinion, the, one of the best television shows ever made, if not the best, is uh, The West Wing. Uh, it's uh, so good that I'm currently watching it in two different contexts. So I'm partway through season one and partway through season three at the same time. That might be a bit of a sad thing to to admit to, but but that's the truth. It's called The West Wing, after the West Wing of the White House uh, in in the US, which is, if you like, the business end of the White House. And it's about a fictional American president and his staff. My favorite character on the the show is a character called CJ Craig. She's the president's press secretary, And I really enjoy it when she's in in the press room, briefing the press, uh, fielding really tricky questions from them, knocking them out of the park, and effortlessly incorporating some some witty banter as she goes. But as great as CJ is, she has nothing on Jesus. I mean, she has nothing on Jesus in, in a number of different ways. But what I'm talking about specifically now is that she has nothing on Jesus when it comes to fielding questions. And chapter 12 of Mark's Gospel does come across as something akin to a press conference uh, at times. It doesn't take that much imagination to to insert in uh, microphones and cameras and flashing lights. From the end of chapter 11 to our passage today, Jesus is fielding questions. And they're tricky questions. Uh, But they're they're asked with a sinister motive because they aren't questions asked in order to get answers. They're, They're not questions asked to inquire their questions asked to entrap. We see it really clearly in Mark chapter 12 and verse 13, which begins, later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They go on then to ask him a question about paying taxes, which is designed to force Jesus into giving an answer that will either put him on the wrong side of the Jewish people and possibly even God, or to put him on the wrong side of the Romans and Caesar. But Jesus knows their hearts, he sees right through them, and he answers the question perfectly, without falling into their trap. They ask other questions, which Jesus also answers perfectly, while at the same time rebuking those who are asking him the questions. He tells the parable of the vineyard, which we were thinking about with Paul last week in the first sermon uh, in this series. And not only that, but he also turns their questions around, turns them against them, showing them that they've misunderstood both God and his word. It was quite the press conference, but finally, at the beginning of our passage this evening, we get to a question that instead of being a cunning question, is a kingdom question. It's a question which, instead of being asked to entrap Jesus, seems to be genuine. It's asked in search of an answer, and the answer sheds light on God's kingdom and what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. Mostly when we hear about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in the Gospels, they're at odds with Jesus, but not this one. We're not told, but I imagine he's been kind of uh, standing at the back somewhere. Maybe he'd come along with the intention of seeing Jesus caught out by the questions that that were going to be asked, or maybe even to ask one of his own questions to catch Jesus out. But instead of asking uh, perhaps that question, uh, he doesn't. He listens to what's going on. He listens to the questions being asked, and he notices that Jesus is giving good answers to those questions. Jesus doesn't fall into their traps, but instead, he answers the questions well. There's something extraordinary about the way that this man is answering questions, and it seems that this teacher of the law uh, is ready to ask a genuine question. He actually wants to hear what the answer is. Have a look down with me at verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? He, he, he came, uh, he heard, he, he saw things, he noticed things, and he asked a question. Wouldn't it be great if people coming to St. Mark's heard and saw things uh, that got them, to ask, got them asking kingdom questions? I think we can learn from this teacher in his asking of questions. Asking questions is a great thing to do. It's something that children do all of the time, isn't it? They ask endless questions about how things work, about why things are uh, the way that they are. I think sometimes they have more questions than the people that they're asking have energy to answer those questions. But they're doing it because they have so much to learn. They want to increase their knowledge. But that wears off, doesn't it? We all too easily lose our wonder And stop asking questions. But that should never be the case when it comes to God, to his kingdom, to his word. There will always be something new to learn. And if we stop asking questions, it's an indication that we've stopped wanting to learn more. We've lost our sense of wonder. If you're new to Christianity, uh, perhaps if you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian, I'd really encourage you to ask questions there are loads of questions to ask. It's something that we major on in our Alpha course uh, that we run, encouraging people to ask their questions, uh, but there won't be another Alpha course starting now until September. Uh, so don't wait until then. Uh, grab someone in the meantime. Ask them questions, and if they don't know the answers, they'll, they will, they'll help you find them out. Maybe you've been a Christian for years, though. You know lots of answers now, and actually, uh, if you're honest, you've stopped asking questions let me encourage you to get back into the habit. Don't go away from your your personal Bible reading without having asked a question. Don't go away from hearing a sermon without having asked a question. Not in a way that puts yourself above God's word, uh, interrogating it in a hostile way or judging it, but kingdom questions, questions that are about God and his kingdom and which, when answered, will shed light on those things. The question that we have here in verse 28 is a question like that, and though unlike the previous questions, it, uh, it's a genuine question, it isn't less tricky than those questions. You might remember our series on the Ten Commandments at the end of last year and have have that list of ten in mind when when you're thinking about what the greatest commandment is. But no, according to the Jewish leaders, there were 613 commandments in the Torah, which is the first five books of our Old Testament, 613 commandments, 365 prohibitions, and 248 positive commandments. That's quite a few to choose from uh, when asked which the greatest commandment is. So, which is it that Jesus would choose? Well, the teacher of the law doesn't have long to wait. Uh, Like with the other questions, it seems that Jesus has an answer ready straight away. Have a look down with me at verse 29. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus answers the question uh, with not one, but two commandments. Uh, And these commandments in verses 30 and 31 of our passage are the verses which we've attached to our vision statement for the year of being all in. We've been aiming to love God with all we have and to love those around us by being all in when it comes to serving, uh, inviting, being accountable, and growing our church family. And those are great things for us to be doing, but that's not where Jesus starts, did you notice? Jesus begins halfway through verse 29 with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here, and as Jesus continues on with the greatest commandment, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And it's vital that he starts this way. Like with commands elsewhere in the Bible, this command to love is not just given for the sake of a commandment. It's not like God is some kind of demented dictator who just wants to boss people around and have them follow his rules. There is a reason for following the greatest commandment, a motivation for doing it. And the motivation is this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God's people are not told to love some distant deity. Instead, they're commanded to love the God who first loved them and who is in a relationship with them. Though, uh, though it isn't here in Mark, back in Deuteronomy, uh, the word Lord here is written in capital letters, which when we see it in our English Old Testaments is a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is God's name that he revealed to his people when he entered into an exclusive relationship with them, a covenant relationship. It's, it's his covenant name the name of the God who made a covenant with his people, that, he would, that they would be his people and he would be their God. Before he gave this command, he'd already entered into a relationship with them, rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and given them victory over their enemies. The God who commands his people to love him is the God who first loved them. So God loves his people, uh, but he is also one. One. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is without equal. There is no God beside him. The nations who lived around God's people at the time that they they got this commandment worshipped lots of different gods. But God says, no, there is no God but me. He proved it time and time again to his people, and he would go on proving it to them. God is the God who loves his people, and there is no God beside him. And it's only with that knowledge that God's people then and us today, if we're following him, are commanded to love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And that response from us makes perfect sense if it's true that he loves us and that there are no gods beside him. Loving God is the appropriate response in light of his love for us. And there being no other gods means that our love shouldn't be divided between many gods, but that we should worship and love God alone with all that we have, with all that we are, with every part of our lives. Uh, Many people in the ancient world, again, at the time that this command was first given, had different gods for different parts of their lives. So they would have kind of one god for home and one god for crops and one god for fertility and another god for weather and so on and so forth. So they'd pray to and make sacrifices to different gods uh, depending on the area of, of their lives that they were concerned about. Uh, so they would, they would make their prayers and sacrifices and then they'd hope for the best. But even though they did that, it was pointless. In reality, there is no God but one, and it's he that should be loved and worshipped alone. And sure, we don't do exactly what those people did uh, in ancient times, but sometimes I think that we aren't that far off. We too are at risk of having different gods for different parts of our lives maybe the God of money or success for our work lives, perhaps the God of our children's success or of materialism for our home lives, maybe the God of popularity or the God of entertainment or the God of enjoyment for our social lives. Of course, uh, none of those things are gods, but that doesn't stop us from turning them into gods, from worshipping each of them, uh, kind of like people did in the ancient world. We might even make sacrifices to them at times. We might sacrifice our time to these gods. We might uh, sacrifice our money to these gods. We might sacrifice our, even our integrity to these gods. Perhaps we're working late at work on things that could wait until tomorrow, when we could be getting to home group on time, or going home to spend time with our families, or going to have a drink with that friend who's really struggling at the moment, sacrificing time and energy to the God of success or to good opinion or the God of ease. Maybe what's not at work is more difficult, and we're trying to avoid that. Perhaps at the end of a long day, we're watching things that really aren't that helpful for us to watch because we think we've earned it, sacrificing perhaps our own personal holiness to the god of entertainment or pleasure. Perhaps we're stubbornly refusing to work on mending damaged relationships, sacrificing unity and harmony to the gods of self and of pride. Now, lots of those things that we might be at risk of making into gods aren't bad things in and of themselves. Some of them are good things, things that God loves to give us. The problem starts, as has been said by other people before, when we start making good things into God things. I wonder what things in your life you might be at risk of making into God things. What is calling you to divide up your love so that it gets a share of the love that should be for God alone? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We're to love him with all that we have in all areas of our lives. And of course, there will be decisions that we make that help or hinder us in doing that. Uh, One thing that's likely to help us is is accountability. And all in accountability groups is one of our vision goals for this year. And groups that people are in at St. Mark's are a great way uh, for for remembering how it is that God would have us live and encouraging each other uh, to live that way. We're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. But I guess one might reasonably say, surely there are other things that I'm supposed to love as well, that it would be good to love, even that I'm told to love. How can I do that if all the love that I have is for God and Him alone? Or on the other end of the spectrum, someone might say, that's fantastic news. Great. If I have to love God with everything I have, then uh, that means I don't need to worry about loving great Aunt Mildred. But we see the answer to, to both of these things in what Jesus goes on to say in Mark chapter 12. Have a look with me from verse 31. The second, uh, that is the second greatest commandment, is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God with all we have does not, uh, doesn't mean not loving those around us. On the contrary, it necessitates loving those around us. It's true that love for God is the greatest commandment, but Jesus knew that actually we, we really aren't able to love God unless we're loving those around us as well. If we love God, we'll also be loving what He loves, and God loves people. That might uh, not always be easy for us. Sometimes it's hard for us to love people, but if we love God, that will help us to love people, because His love is different from the love that we might naturally have. I once heard it described as the difference between uh, light from the sun and light from the moon. I think naturally we're predisposed to love people in the same way that the moon shines. It only shines because there's light to reflect. It doesn't generate any light of its own, and it wouldn't shine unless there was light shining on it. And naturally, I think we tend to love only that which is lovely. Uh, we, we, We love something because it is lovely. The love that we have for them is only a reflection of the loveliness that is already there. But God loves like the sun shines. The sun doesn't need to reflect light from anywhere else. It generates its own light. And it's like that with God's love. It says elsewhere in the Bible that God is love. He doesn't need uh, something to be lovely in order to love it. He operates more in a kind of love first, make lovely later system. And if, uh, if, and it's as we see uh, God's love for us, as we respond to him with love that he equips us to love other people in the same way that he loves us, not based on their loveliness, on their merit, but because God loves them and tells us to love them as well. And this should change the way that we look at people, I think. Do we make assessments of people as the world would have us uh, make them sometimes, asking what they can do for me? Is this a beneficial relationship for me? What can I get out of this person? Or do we see people, as God sees them, regardless of who they are, as made in His image and loved by them? Maybe asking, how can I show God's love to this person? I wonder who the person is in your life for whom you are the best-placed person this week to show them God's love. Jesus adds this second commandment, uh, which He's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, Because we can't be loving God with all that we have unless we are also loving those around us, loving what he loves. seems that the teacher of the law on hearing this uh, from Jesus is pleased with Jesus' answer. As we go on uh, reading from verse 32, it says this, "'Well said, teacher,' the man replied. "'You are right in saying that God is one and that there is no other but him.' To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. At first, uh, that came across to me as a little bit uppity in response to Jesus, but it seems that Jesus is quite pleased with the answer. Verse 34 goes on, When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. We might say that this teacher was not far from the kingdom of God kind of spatially because he was right there with Jesus, who we're about to see as the king of God's kingdom. But I think that what Jesus is getting at is that he's not far from God's kingdom because he's glimpsed what it looks like to be a citizen of God's kingdom. God's kingdom, that, that context in which God's reign and rule is recognized and acknowledged and lived in light of. He's seen uh, that it's more than burnt offerings, and sacrifices and again like with some of those other things we've talked about these weren't bad things they were things that God had commanded his Old Testament people to do but they in themselves weren't enough uh, for them to show their real love for him likewise our coming to church on a Sunday evening and worshipping God in song does not fulfill our obligation to love him God, God tells us to sing to him it's a good thing for us to do he loves it when we do it and uh, it, it might be that we, that we encounter God in, in, a, in a particular way when we're doing that and perhaps feel our love for him then more than at other times. But if that's all it is, then that's not enough. We're to worship God with, with all we have in all different parts of our lives. We're to put him first, others second, and, and only then ourselves. All too often, the temptation is to do it the other way around, to make ourselves number one, to then think about other people, and perhaps think about God somewhere after that. But God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom in in all kinds of ways, and one of them is in this way. It's the other way around. We're to put God first, and then others, and only then ourselves. The teacher of the law was not far from God's kingdom. He'd glimpsed what it looks like to, to live as a citizen of God's kingdom. He was not far from it, Uh, But he wasn't in it. And I take it that that's because he hadn't yet recognized the kingdom's king. This uh, series that, that we're in at the moment is called Why Easter Matters. And you might have been thinking that so far what we've been talking about doesn't seem to have a lot to do with that. You might have been thinking, Nick, are you preaching the right sermon? And you could have been forgiven for thinking that. But this press conference of Jesus is taking place only about two days before the very first Good Friday. In the second half of verse 34, it says, And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. The religious authorities were done with trying to catch Jesus out uh, with tricky questions, which had been their tactic for quite a while. Uh, Now they change tactics to a much more sinister tactic. They instead plot his death. A few days earlier, uh, the king of God's kingdom, Jesus, had entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey and being worshipped by the crowds. And now that seems pretty fitting, uh, a fitting thing to have happen when Jesus enters into Jerusalem to me. But again, God's kingdom is upside down in all sorts of ways. And Jesus's moment of glory ultimately wouldn't have been two days previously when he entered uh, the city being worshipped, but would be a few days later when he was taken out of the city and crucified. His death was his ultimate moment of glory at least in part because without it we couldn't hope to be citizens of God's kingdom or live in light of being that. Jesus's death gives us hope when we fail to follow the greatest command because though we deserve punishment for not following such great and perfect commands, in his death he took our place. He was our substitute, taking the punishment that we deserve for not loving uh, the way that we ought to. He's our hope, He's also our example. Acknowledging the king of God's kingdom and looking to him will show us how to live as citizens of God's kingdom. He perfectly loved God with all of himself at all times, and he loved his neighbors to the point of dying for them. So as we approach Easter, let's look to the king of God's kingdom, acknowledging him as king and living as his subjects following the greatest command to love God with all our hearts and soul and mind and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Not in a a legalistic way, but in response to the fact that God first loved us and that there is no God beside him. Let's uh, stand to pray. I wonder if you uh, have a question off the back of what we've been thinking about. I wonder if you uh, think that there are any areas of your life uh, where you're at risk of making things gods that aren't gods, uh, where you've been sacrificing things uh, to gods that you shouldn't. Perhaps you're in a place of needing to, to reorder your loves, making sure that your love is, is for God and God alone and that you're loving what he loves. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that you are a God who commands your people to love you, only having first loved them and entered into relationship with them. Thank you that there is no God uh, but you. Pray that you would help us to see uh, Jesus as the king of your kingdom, that you would help us to uh, live the way he lived, loving you with all we have and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Amen.